Ignorance is bliss. That is an idiom that is often used when situations become complex and people choose to ignore them or not to seek the truth about them at all. The logic kind of goes like this, and we're all familiar with it. The less we know about a problem, the less we worry about it. And furthermore, the more someone tells us about a problem that we don't want to address, the more irritated we become at telling uh, at their telling us of that issue, right? And every teenager in here says, <laughs> or a retired guy, I mean, <laughs> right? Right? The more irritated we become, right? The more often we hear the same thing over and over. Well, Valerie and I recently went in for our yearly blood panel test, and my results came back quite alarming. Uh, come to find out, and not surprising to me, as my family all suffer from high cholesterol, that my bad cholesterol number is 80 points higher than the level that is high. Uh, no doubt a terminal illness and a condition that, if not corrected, will result in my early termination from this earth. I could respond lazily, and to be honest, I have been a little content because all feels well inside me, and I really like to eat pizza. I could continue to preach to myself and to others, ignorance is bliss, <laughs> as I race towards an early expiration date, or I could take the advice of my physician and begin to exercise and change my eating habits and take some medication. All those things need to happen. You can be praying for your pastor. In my study this week, I ran into a story covered on NBCnews.com, and it was titled this, Never Say Die, Why So Many Doctors Won't Break Bad News. The article covered the story of a man whose blood panel came back much worse than mine and much more alarming, giving him only six more months to live. The patient happened to be a doctor and was horrified that his physician effectively used the hallway outside his open door to tell a student doctor of the prognosis. He did so in such a way that the patient could hear. Not only was that inappropriate, but the physician himself never articulated the terminal illness to the patient himself. His method to give the bad news was hoping that the patient would overhear his hallway conversation. Not the kind of communication that is appropriate for any prognosis, let alone one of an early death. Because the patient himself was a teaching doctor, he spent the last few months teaching physicians that ignorance is not bliss when patients have a terminal illness. He taught them that no one wants to hear bad news, and we can all say amen to that, but a good doctor will always tell their patient what that news is. Amen? If you're visiting Capital City Church this morning, you're joining us along the path of preaching through the life of Christ as it is recorded in the four Gospels. And today we are going to see Christ be a good physician and give some hard news to the patients. We are now in our fourth sub-series titled The Galilean Light. Over the last four months, we have covered the birth, boyhood, and early Judean ministry of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. This sub-series titled The Galilean Light reflects 
the largest single chapter of Jesus' ministry. It, it spans about one and a half years. John's Gospel, where we have spent the last couple of months, covers approximately one year in the ministry of Christ. So by the end of this one and a half years, and we'll probably be there about that long. No, I, we might. I don't know really how long it's going to take. I've, I've penciled in my scheduled preaching all the way through the end of this year and into next, so I know it'll be there. But we'll be covering, by and large, this season of Christ's life. It is the one most familiar to the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is where they all start. John's Gospel, where we have spent those last couple of months, as I said, is, covers the year before that. If you've been with us or been here, you'll remember that Jesus' first year was decorated by the preaching, remember, of John the Baptist and Jesus' miracles at Passover 30 AD. All the Jews who witnessed and heard of the miracles at Passover, remember, returned home. We learned this last week. And no doubt, right, began telling of the arrival of one who may be the long-awaited Messiah. You can imagine the buzz, right? No Twitter. No Facebook. Just people talking about the one who cleansed the temple and did miracles. Did miracles. Last week we examined John 4, and, and it was the bookend to this first year of Jesus' life, and we examined a miracle that the great physician Jesus performed. Remember, it happened from Cana, but the miracle was Jesus healing someone from a distance. And the miracle took place, remember, at Capernaum, about 14 miles away, in the house of a royal official or a nobleman who was almost certainly a Gentile. And those are two things I want you to maybe hold on to here for just a moment. A Gentile from a distance in the city where? What city? Capernaum, right? He was in Cana. The miracle happens in Capernaum. It fits into our sermon today. So hold on to that. That long-distance merciful miracle not only brought temporal healing to the royal official son, but more importantly, eternal salvation, remember, to his whole household, teaching us that divine authority authenticates Jesus' message to repent from sin. Repent from sin and believe the good news of eternal salvation found in Christ alone. This second miracle at Capernaum marks the beginning of what will become a large-scale one and a half year public proclamation of Jesus being the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. We will be in Luke 4 today, if you didn't catch that already, chapter 14 through 30. So this is our first bounce out of John for a while, as now John is, is coming into close contact with the Galilean ministry. And we'll see that Jesus initially receives a hero's homecoming, like a veteran coming home from war would hope to receive. They're happy to see him. But for them, ignorance, listen here, was bliss. They did not want to hear the great physician reveal their terminal illness. And rather than turning to Christ, they turn against him. They turn against him. In effect, Luke 4, 14 through 30 records Jesus uncovering a terminal illness in an unwilling patient. Let's consider together what we can learn and apply from the text. Amen? Here we go. First, we'll take a look at verses 14 through 30, where we'll see Jesus, a hometown hero, and one who receives a hero's welcome. 
We can imagine all of the anticipation, and, and certainly they're hearing that Jesus has now arrived in Galilee, and they, they hear of this great miracle that has happened in Capernaum. And now here we see verse 14, Jesus returns to Galilee. And uh, when and how did he return? I want us to notice there in verse 14, you might underline this. I think it's so, so important to who Jesus is. He returns in the power of the Spirit. That uh, clearly is understanding, right, that something has happened at Jesus' baptism, right, that is different. The Spirit has come upon Jesus and it has remained. He left that town one way and he returns a different way in the power of the Spirit. It's so important for us to see. And because of that, what happened? News about him spread through all the surrounding district. What district is that? This is your test for the morning. It's an easy one. I heard someone say Galilee. You can go home early. No. <laughs> uh, have an extra hot dog. All right. Yeah, he returns, right, to Galilee. Now, because we're being studious and we're harmonizing the events of Christ's ministry, we know from John's gospel that Jesus left his overlapping baptismal ministry with John the Baptist in Judea when John was arrested. Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way to Cana in Galilee, where verse 14 recognizes that in the power of the Spirit, he healed the royal official or the nobleman's son. And as verse 14 continues, news about him was spreading in Galilee. Verse 15 says, he began teaching in their synagogues, and he was being praised by all. Praised by all. And now he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now I want us to just pause here for a few minutes and consider a few things. Warren Wiersbe, a great preacher and commentary, made some wonderful observations about this moment that I would love to share with you. Observation number one is this, that Jesus's, it was Jesus' custom to go to public worship. This devotion is something Jesus' followers should imitate today. Remember Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 is written to the church, and, and it says this, and let us consider how to stimulate one another. In other words, we could pause. How is it, church, that we're going to stimulate one another? Well, and one another to what? To love, that is, sacrificially love in a way that people do not deserve? How are we going to encourage people to treat people in such a way that they are not being treated, to love people like Christ loved the church who died for them? How are we going to do this? How in the world should we accomplish this? And how can we continue on in good deeds? Look there. And verse 25 answers the question by not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another. And how much more? All the more, as we see the day drawing near. All the more. Well, the first observation that we make is that Jesus is committed to going to, the, going to synagogue for public worship. Secondly, Wiersbe notes uh, that Jesus, being God in the flesh, might have argued against going to public worship, right? Because of the religious system and its corruption. And beloved, how corrupt was it? It's the system that all ultimately works with Rome to get him murdered. He could say, 
Don't go to synagogue. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites and people who are going to put me on the cross. Just follow me. Just worship God out in the country. Just worship God wherever you go. Just forget all that organized religion stuff. But Jesus doesn't say that. It was his custom to go to synagogue every Sunday. Think about that. And all the more, beloved, we're encouraged to as we see the day approaching. And we, he would have been right to leave that religious system, but he didn't. Or notice that he, uh, he didn't need instruction. Can you imagine this for just a moment? Jesus shows up at church this morning, watched through the back doors. He, he's a good Baptist, so he sits in the back row. I doubt that, right? <laughs> I don't know where he would sit. But my guess is if we knew it was him who walked in the door, it might be a little intimidating, right? The creator of the universe, the inspirer of the word of God. He knows every right thing from every wrong thing, and he just has a seat in front of you. I had the opportunity a couple times to teach where some of my seminary professors were in the room or, or other people who I respected, pastors who had been pastors for 40-some years and you kind of have to choke up a little bit and stick your chest out and put your shoulders back and go, here we go. I hope I don't say something stupid, <laughs> right? Can you imagine Jesus sitting in the room, submitted to the teaching of the Word of God, submitted to the reading of the Word of God, come to worship God with you? Wow. What a privilege. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. He knew everything that had been written. Oh, but there he was. Amen? Jesus didn't get distracted by those realities. He made his way on the Sabbath to the place of worship and prayer. Why? Because it's the right thing to corporately meet with God's people and to worship. To worship. What a lesson. So Jesus' custom was to come and to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it says there, look, he stood up to read. Verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And we can see from this text that Jesus read from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 61 and verses, verse 1 and then part of verse 2, along with Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6. Our verse 18 records it this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, I really hope that you take some time this week and dig into this passage, and, and you'll find that it is such a strategic place that Jesus stops here in the text. The very next uh, portion of verse 19 goes on to then explain the vengeance of the Lord who is, that is going to come through the Messiah. But somewhere in the white space between Jesus saying, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and then the vengeance to come, he stops. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Well, he's coming again. And he's going to come and he is going to be a good king, right? And he is going to rule over the nations. And he is going to bring the vengeance on sin that is to come. 
Verse 20 says, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, and notice here, he began, meaning there was more exposition that was going on. Luke is not covering every word that he has said here, but he is summing up this text, and it says that he began, right? He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What an introduction to a sermon that Jesus gives here, right? He reads the text. He uh, effectively turns to the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, an old Isaiah, to, to a text that is clearly understood by all the people to be describing the, the coming of the Messiah. He reads it, right? It's kind of a mic drop moment. <laughs> he reads it. He drops the mic and says, today is the day. Today is the day. Remember that Jesus is in the same synagogue that he grew up in as a little boy. He went to as a child and worshipped as a young man. People knew him. These people had watched Jesus, his brothers and his sisters, grow up, get married, and take up the family business. These folks had worshipped alongside Joseph and Mary each week for years and years as it was their custom to do so. Now Jesus, who many of these folks have seen and heard about cleansing the temple at Passover and performing many signs, including the nobleman's son being healed at Capernaum, had come as a hometown hero. And now he was expositing the prophet Isaiah, claiming, albeit in a veiled way, that he was in fact the Messiah. Notice verse 18 that Jesus had arrived in the power of the Holy Spirit and was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. You might underline or highlight the word poor there in verse 18. I, I think it's central to this text and the thought that is in this text. And if you get to dig into some of these uh, verses, you'll find that most scholars are thinking that this is somewhat of an overview of of the ministry that Jesus does, an introduction to the types of things that he was teaching. I don't know that I really could land there one way or another, but, but no doubt in, at the center of the issue that is going to unfold before our eye, eyes today is this idea of him preaching the gospel to the poor. And the word poor there in verse 18 is not the Greek word for economically poor. That would have been the word penes. This word being translated poor is the Greek word tokos. It certainly encompasses the possibility and probably the reality of being economically poor, but it goes just a little bit deeper than that. It's not just economics. I'm reminded of a friend of mine. He is a he's somewhat of an executive sort of fellow. I maybe have told some of you this story before, but he travels for business conferences, and one big one that he's got to go from North Carolina out to California every year, and so he goes out there, and, and I love him. He's a deep, great, wonderful friend of mine. They have uh, four adopted kids from Africa and four of their own, and they're just, uh, just a privilege. Both he and his wife have been, uh, were um, um, missionaries to, to China. Both are fluent in Mandarin, just, just really neat couple. But he works for this high-end company, and, and he has one of the coolest beards you've ever seen. 
Doug, I'm telling you, it's like three times that size, well-groomed. And so not too long ago, he had traveled out to California, and he thought, well, I want to get a cup of coffee in the morning. And so he heads up, finds a Starbucks, and, and uh, he goes in, he gets his big cup of coffee, and, and he goes outside, and, and it's pretty hot. And so he takes the lid off of it, and he's standing there. Somebody comes by and drops a couple coins in his coffee. He's looking a little shaggy. They thought he was maybe economically poor. He was a little disturbed. I think he did drink the coffee. He's quite a character. It's not just economically poor that is going on here. Tokos, right? It, it encompasses the possibility of being poor, but it carries with it, listen here, the nuance that the person is in desperate need of God's help. We might describe the nobleman who comes and makes the morning trip uh, all the way from Capernaum up to Jesus last week, and he is desperate, right? He knows that his son is not going to make it. He's not going to live. He's desperate for God to do something in his life. It's important to understand it's this kind of desperation, this kind of brokenness, this kind of need for God's help that Jesus comes to preach the gospel to. This is why Jesus will often say throughout the gospels, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but rather those who know that they are sick. They are tokos, right? They are in desperate need of God's help. Their situation is desperate. They're not saying ignorance is bliss and going about their life however they want. Beloved, track with me. Jesus has come to share the gospel with those who know their need for God. They have a recognition of their brokenness. They are tokos. They are poor in spirit. They are base. Actually, some of the word, uh, and you get into the Greek and the old uh, uh, um, um, classical Greek is this idea. They are so shameful that they are bowed down like this with a hand in front of their face and one hand out saying, I am so desperate I need help. It's shameful. The shameful word. And it's those who Jesus came to save. It's those who Jesus came to preach the gospel to. They are poor in spirit. And friends, it is those who's, uh, who respond in faith who will be eternally saved from God's coming judgment all throughout the gospels. And it's not just economic poverty. It's those broken. They get it. My sin has taken me to the bottom, and they may look like they're on the top, but they're not. So, but I'm not sure what it must have been like to listen to Jesus, right? A man who was preaching in this synagogue who had no sin. Can you imagine? I don't even know, right? I can't roll over in bed in my earliest consciousness and not be duped in sin, living in sin, having some sinful, selfish thought, broken by sin. My left ankle hurts and my right hip hurts <laughs> and my dog's laying on the pillow next to me. That's horrible, right? Sin, right? I hope that doesn't happen uh, in the new creation, right? Sin. I'm not sure what it must have been to listen to a man who had no influence of sin in him one who carried himself around with the gravitas of a leader that spoke the worlds into existence. 
One who could ask the Father for legions of angels to come out of the heavens and fight for him, but did not, but could have. Can you imagine the confidence that must have exuded from his personality? I could ask for that. But in his meekness, he did not. One thing we can be certain of is this, beloved. You and I have never experienced a leader like this, and we have never heard a sermon that Jesus had begun to speak. The Gospel writer Matthew acknowledges the, the unexplainable personality and speaking ability that Jesus possessed in this way in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 28 and 29 say this, when Jesus had finished these words, this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? The crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed. Something's different. (laughs) For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And the gospel uh, writer John records a scene very similar to the one we are in today. I think this probably played out over and over in Jesus' life. Listen here as I as I recount it for you in John chapter 7, verses 40 through 46. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, this is Jesus, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. They're struggling. They're trying to understand. By and large, the Jews thought that there would be another prophet like Moses that would show up because Deuteronomy 18 said there would be. But they had possibly separated that prophet from who the Christ was going to be. And so there's this argument because they've heard Jesus speak and they don't know what to do with him and they see the gravitas and they hear the words and they're saying, well, is it the prophet? (laughs) Or maybe it's the Christ. Maybe it's the Christ. So some of the people, therefore, they heard these words were saying, certainly this is the prophet. Verse 41, others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid their hands on him. The officers, when they came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him in? Can you imagine? Just grab a hold of Jesus and tell him, the one who can call a few legions of angels to his side has that kind of gravitas. Why didn't you just grab him and bring him in? And I can imagine if I was that soldier, I might have thought in my mind, I probably wouldn't have said it out loud, it would have cost you your life. Why don't you go get him? <laughs> I think that's probably what I would have thought, Right? You do it. It seems so easy. What do they say? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Oh, the gravitas, right? What kind of man must Jesus have been? Notice, beloved, our verse 15 says that Jesus began teaching in the synagogues. And what happened because of his teaching? He was praised by all. And verse 22 describes Jesus' speaking ability as causing wonder because of the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Must have been something, right? we got to imagine that's so much better than my preaching. Who laughed? No. Well, beloved, here comes the shift in the text. Where everything is going really well now, 
it's going to change. It's going to change. And really, if you do a study of Luke, uh, just as a whole, uh, other than one statement that Simeon makes to, uh, to, to, to Jesus' mother there at the temple, stating that this man is going to cause much pain in Israel, right? He's going to be the rise and the fall of many, and he's going to pierce your heart, Mary. Well, here it starts, and here it begins. This is the very first the negative thing that is recorded in the book of Luke. And it has taken a turn for the worse. The end of verse 22 says, and they were saying, if you want to dig into your Greek grammar, you'll see that the verb tense there uh, tells us they kept on saying this. This is what they were continuing to say. Is this not Joseph's son? Laden within this question is the people's rejection of Jesus' claim to be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. Proclaiming Jesus to be the son of Joseph from the town of Nazareth begins to be and will continue to be a stumbling block for all of the people in Israel. Remember, just moments ago, we read in John 7, 41 and 42, where people were up in arms about Jesus' identity. Who is this guy? And those who argued against Jesus said, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. as He can't. Has not the Scripture said that he comes, right, from David, from Bethlehem? Beloved, it is that logic and their ignorance of Jesus' lineage and birthplace that drives the question, is this not Joseph's son? And it is this rejection that spurs on the prophecy found in verse 23 and the harsh teaching that is to follow. We have shifted gears out of the positive and into the negative. Jesus, in the power of the fullness of the Spirit, prophetically, verse 23, said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. When true prophetic form, Jesus knows that his hometown, what his hometown people are thinking. They, like many thousands of unbelievers to come, want to see Jesus do a miracle and a miraculous sign. And specifically in this case, it's like the one that we preached through last week, the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum. They were effectively saying in their unbelief, prove your claim to be the fulfillment of the Messiah. You're from the wrong town. You're from the wrong family. Prove it. They were, in fact, like the billions of unbelievers in the world today. They were the opposite of what Jesus had preached in the book of Isaiah. They were prideful. They were not poor in spirit. They were not tokos. They thought they were free and not captive to sin. They thought that they could see correctly, not recognizing that the fact that they were spiritually dead and blind and they were opposed and oppressed by their blindness and captive to sin and did not think that they needed to be set free. And isn't that the picture? That's the picture. It's the picture of unbelieving humanity. I'm not broken by my sin. I want to stay into it. I can't see that it's taken me captive. And therefore, why do I need you to set me free? Beloved, in fact, they wanted their hometown hero to deliver them from Rome, but not from their sin. 
They, in fact, had a terminal illness. And for them, ignorance was bliss. They did not want to hear it. In effect, they had had too much cholesterol in their blood, and they were unwilling to do anything about it. And beloved, their familiarity with Jesus and his family had bred contempt in their dying hearts. And verse 24 says, he, uh, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And it's with this statement that Jesus points out that the prophets who were sent to Israel were never welcomed. They were never welcomed. They, like good physicians, came with the medicine of God's word, just like John the Baptist and Jesus. The message of the prophets had always been to repent, that is, turn away from your sin and return to God for salvation because he's merciful. It's all through the Old Testament. Where these New Age preachers say that we don't want anything to do with the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament over and over and over and over is merciful and merciful and merciful and merciful. Just turn and come back. Just turn and come back. Just turn and come back. I love Dr. Bookman. He says this and it shocks your ears just a little bit, that God is a sucker for repentance. Just turn. As we get ready to look at Jesus' second message to his people in the synagogue, this one is not very well received. Jesus, the good physician, delivers a prognosis of a terminal illness. And let's Keep the context in mind, although we do not know how long it has been since Jesus had done the miracle for the royal official's son in Capernaum, we know that it is less than 10 miles away, Cana is, and clearly the word of the miracle has, is, is very clearly traveled to Nazareth. Verses 25 through 27 describe a time in the same geographic era, area of Israel, that is Galilee, where God had sent two prophets. Two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to call the people to repentance. Israel rejected that call because of their terminal illness of sin. However, as these couple verses describe where Israel was unbelieving, the Gentiles were believing. And this reminder of Israel's history is not going to be received well by the people. It's not going to be received well. Jesus said in verse 25, but I say to you, to you in truth. There were many widows in Israel. That's Jewish widows, right? In the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, right? There's many widows, and, 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 and you'll know if you're a student of your Old Testament, right, that the widow is, is most likely to die of starvation, is most vulnerable because they've been left alone. Nobody has picked them up to care for them. They're totally reliant on their husband, and the food's out, and all of the people who, are, who would use to, to give out of their, their surplus to help uh, people like widows, right? They can't even afford and eat themselves, and, and the widows are all over the place, right? And they're dying from starvation. That's famine. The famine came over all the land, verse 25, and, and verse 26, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Why? Why was he sent to none of them? Their unbelief, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. This is a Gentile woman, right? A woman who was a widow. Beloved, 
You no doubt remember that this Gentile widow was poor like everyone else because of the famine. She was poor also in spirit. She had come to the end of herself and she had nothing left to gain, remember? If she ate her last cake of bread and used her last dab of oil, she would only survive a few more hours. So she believed Elijah to be the man of God, to be the uh, man of God that he said he was. And a miracle was done for her. Verse 27, and adding another believing Gentile from Israel's history, Jesus said this, there were many lepers in Israel. That's Jewish lepers in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only a Gentile, Naaman, the Syrian. Loved, you'll remember that Naaman was a military leader who had come against Israel, right? In, in this time of famine, what an what a even more horrific thing, right, that this man was. I see that they're weak and I'll kick them while they're down, right? That's the idea. He was a Gentile from Syria. He was terminally ill with leprosy, but he recognized his real terminal illness. And rather than not believe the prophet Elisha who had been sent to him, that that would be what Israel did. He believed him. He dipped himself in the dirty Jordan River seven times, right? And he was healed. Now hear me out. Jesus, the Son of God, a prophet, has been sent to Israel with the message of repentance and eternal salvation, just like Elijah and Elisha. And he's being rejected, just like Elijah and Elisha. And the people refuse to believe in him. They do not perceive themselves to be in need. They are not tokos. They are not poor in spirit. For them, ignorance was bliss. They did not care about their blood panel or their high cholesterol. And rather than believe that the prophet Jesus, they wanted a miraculous sign like the one he did for the Gentile noblemen in Capernaum. So Jesus likens them to their historic fathers who were caught up in the gross worship of idolatry. And so much so that God forced the nation into real poverty and famine only to find that it was the Gentiles who would believe and not the Israelites. Beloved, we see here that Jesus was a good physician. He loved people enough to not stand outside their doorway to passively tell them of their terminal illness. He looked them in the eye and with oratory skill like no other human being, he told Israel of their terminally ill prognosis and he was violently Rejected. Violently rejected. Can you imagine? They're putting the pieces together. It's very clear in the text. Elijah and Elisha had healed two Gentiles but ignored their own nation. Jesus had just healed this Gentile in Capernaum but was not going to do it for them. And this is how they respond. Verse 28, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Think of that. What a shift. Listen to this guy. He's amazing. We love him. Throw him off the cliff in a matter of a couple verses, right? matter of a couple verses. It was not Jesus' time to die. Being thrown off a cliff would not be punishment enough for Jesus. 
Jesus would have to die for the sin of the world. He would have to be rejected by all, not just his hometown, and slaughtered like a Passover lamb in the city that rejected and murdered all the other prophets before him, Jerusalem. So Jesus, it says here in verse 30, passed through their midst, he went his way. How does that happen? They drive him to the edge of this cliff, right? It comes to the end. It's very similar to the story we see in John. Why didn't you seize him? I don't know. (laughs) Why don't you do it? And he walks through their midst. What an amazing man he must have been. Friends, a monumentous, as we close here, a monumentous early Christian theologian by the name of Augustine said this about people. That we love the truth when it enlightens us, but we hate the truth when it accuses us. We love it when it enlightens us. We hate it when it accuses us. And what a dichotomy we see in this text. In just a matter of a few verses, they love everything he's saying, and the next thing you know, they're trying to murder him. They liked to hear that the Messiah was coming, but they didn't want to hear that it was him. And the fact of the matter is, as we continue to work our way through this life and this teaching series, as we go through the life of Jesus Christ, we are going to find ourselves cheering when he says things like, like, uh, by grace you are saved, through faith. We're going to cheer when we hear, uh, when we hear John 3.16 that we have already studied and that whosoever would believe or whosoever would look to Christ is going to receive eternal life. And we get our pom-poms out, right? Our Christian pom-poms, and we, and we just start shaking them around, and we're so happy. But then we're going to continue on, and we're going to find that we begin to understand what he is saying uh, about marriage might challenge the way we have thought about marriage about sexuality and how it challenges the way we might, especially in America, think about sexuality, about gender, about adultery, about lust, about forgiveness, and and how to invest our money. How dare you, Jesus, begin to tell us how we ought to live? What a dichotomy. You see, beloved, ignorance is bliss, and people often choose to ignore difficulties or not seek the truth about them at all. We often think the less we know about a problem, the less we will have to worry about it. And unfortunately, the more the good physician Jesus tells us about a problem we don't want to address, the more irritated we become at him telling us that it exists. I'm convinced that this is why megachurches turn into megachurches. There's nobody standing in the pulpit and saying, that is wrong. Today we have seen that the hometown hero, Jesus, has become, but also we have seen that the medicine of the truth included salvation for the nations, and that medicine was rejected. Beloved, Jesus uncovers terminal illnesses in our life. The question is, will we receive them? Will we listen to what God said regardless of how we feel about the difficult circumstances that we're going to run into for the next year or two as we go through? Are you ready to hear about what God says about divorce, 
about marriage, about sexuality, about gender, right? For God so loved the world. I want to hear that one again. <laughs> Amen. And Jesus, no doubt, as we saw in our video for Memorial Day, is the one who died for all our sins. We can be grateful for that. Amen.